weekend where we're talking about things or at least discussing things or thinking about things regarding freedom, uh, regarding you know being free and enjoying the things that freedom has allowed us to do. Uh, uh, this is appropriate where we're at. And so I'm going to lead up into uh, uh, Colossians, but I've got a little bit of a road that I want to take to get there so that when we get there, there's a greater appreciation for what Paul is saying, for what Paul is saying. So I'm going to start us out uh, uh, just by a little bit of prayer real quick before we get going. I know I've already prayed for the word, but I, I really think this is a, a good work and maybe a timely word. Um, uh, you know, I have a lot of time to think about a lot of these things during the week as I, as I pray about, Lord, where do you want me to you know, take, take the, the people and, and, and where are you taking me? And uh, one of the things that I think has challenged me all the time is, is, is Lord, uh, I, first of all, I don't, I don't want to be different for the sake of being different, but what I do want uh, is to be set apart. What I do want is to be a peculiar people. Uh, uh, what I do want uh, is, is what the Lord is offering to, to, to be uh, spoken over with a word, you know, and God has a name for, for us and, 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 and a vision for us, and I want to be right in on that just the same as everybody else does. Uh, but I, I do think that where God places us and what God teaches us and talks to us places us all in different platforms. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today, about the platform of Paul, how he was set up to talk to the Colossians, and what freedom and all these things kind of have to do with it. So uh, I will start out by saying, listen, in the book of Joshua, the very first chapter, again, you don't have to turn there, the word courage uh, is repeated uh, three times. Three times. I always thought it was interesting. By the way, if God starts his conversation out with you telling you three times to be courageous, it's not just because he's your cheerleader. It's because usually something is following. All right? You, I mean, if, it's one, if you say it one time, hey, man, be strong, be of courage. Thanks, man. That's a great word. Thank you. But no, no, man. Be strong and be of courage. Yeah, yeah. I heard you. Right? Third time. Be strong. Cra okay, what's going on, man? Right? What's going, what's going to happen that I need that so bad that you got to keep saying it, right? So three times... He has to say this to Joshua as he's about to lead the Israelites toward the promise. And the Hebrew word here describes courage really simply as bravery or to make firm in your heart this idea to determine oneself or to exhibit strong emotion or strong feeling. And we've kind of simplified this word today. Our definition of the word courage uh, today is to possess the ability to do something that frightens us or to have the strength to face pain or grief, according to Webster's. And both these definitions are really adequate today in the use of the word. I, I think they correctly use it. Uh, uh, and I bring this up for, for the gospel to reach the Colossians. Paul must endure hardships. He, he has to endure persecution. As a matter of fact, when he's writing this letter to the Colossian church, Paul's in prison. Paul's not just living the life, man. Yeah, dude, life is pretty good. I'm sitting over here off the Mediterranean. Don't know if you've been here, but it's really beautiful, right? I'm over here floating the Dead Sea. We're baptizing people in the Jordan, right? We're taking trips through Jerusalem so we can see where Jesus died. No, he's not doing any of those things, right? He's in prison. He's in prison. It's still really fresh. Everything's going on. When we discuss and we teach and we preach on such things, I wonder if we fully ever take in the fact when we talk about these letters. We talked all about Colossians and how bad Paul, the first three chapters, did he ever mention that he was sitting in prison? 
No, man, what we're gleaning from it is that he's talking about this transformative power through the whole thing, that when Christ lives in us, he transforms us into this new creation. We don't walk the same person where we crucified the flesh. Now we walk anew in Jesus Christ, and it affects everything we do. It affects everything we say. It affects everything, how we think, all of this. And yet Paul never mentions that all of this comes from while he's sitting in prison. I wonder if we take that in. This is the cost of following the gospel for Paul. Listen, let me say it again. This was the cost of following the gospel. Listen to Paul's gospel resume. Listen to his cost analysis. Okay? 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 29. Paul says, I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped, time, whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. He says, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. He said, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews as well as the Gentiles. I have faced dangers in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. Man, that should be a bold statement. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have a daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Mm, that's good. And I love this. He says, who is led astray that I don't burn with anger when you are confronted with the gospel were any of these things on the forefront of your mind when you went to camp and they were like man you just need to say yes to jesus it's going to feel so awesome and so great like wait till you say yes to jesus your whole life's going to be great can you imagine if they told that to paul everything's going to be work out great now paul okay <laughs> it's like the first time something bad happens paul would be like i'm leaving this <laughs> I mean, is this, is this how you were sold the gospel? Is this how we sell the gospel? It's the truth, right? Did you take into consideration the cost of following Jesus and what it might cost you? Jesus was up front about these things. I mean, bluntly up front. Luke 14 records a moment that a large crowd began to form, and he, and he challenges them with an easy question, right? And in this question, he totally just uses logic. There's nothing hidden in here. He's just, he's just giving them plain logic. He says, who begins with the construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to fit, finish it? Right? That makes sense. You don't want to build a house and find out, oh, man, I don't even have enough money. You should have looked at that before you started building Right? That's what we would say. If we saw somebody do something like this, we were like, they're dumb. Why didn't they think about this? This is obvious. Obviously, you should have known that you didn't have enough finances to finish the job. Right? You should have looked at this. That's what responsible people do. This is Jesus challenging you now about following him. Count the cost. What's it going to cost you? Take a look at it. He's, he's, he's actually challenging you to look at the gospel logically. Listen, you're going to be set apart, peculiar. What's that mean? It means different. How, how much does the world love different? Not very much. You watch the news, they don't like different. They don't like it. This is, this is what he says. He goes on to say, Or what king would go to war with another king without first sitting down discussing whether his army could defeat theirs? 
You strategize, don't you? But when you go into battle, why wouldn't you think about a strategy? How would you enter into Christianity blindly? Why would you do such a thing? And this is honest Christianity. Honest Christianity. This is stuff we don't talk about, which is sad, but it's the truth. It's an honest faith, an upfront faith. Jesus has never promised anything easy. Rewarding, yes. Easy, no. Comfortable, no. Painless, no. He offered you the cross. You should have known better that it was going to be pain involved. Jesus promises persecution. Mm -hmm. He promises that you'll become set apart. Jesus promises you that you will be called a peculiar people, different. These things alone will guarantee you difficulty. Guarantee it. Just like we tell people when they first start tithing. As soon as you tithe and like, that's it, I'm committed. I'm going to give the Lord my money and start trusting God with my finances. I guarantee you the next week the devil is going to come in your house, give you some kind of bill that you can't afford and make you think that you can't tithe again. It takes months, it seems like, to get over that hill where the devil quits trying. And listen, it takes a holy stubbornness to just keep doing it. But once you get past it, I'm going to tell you there's another fear that lays on the other side of it. You know what that is? When you quit tithing. I'm going to tell you now, I'm scared not to tithe. Can't imagine what my life would be like if I didn't tithe. That's what happens when you get over that hurdle. For Paul, saying yes to Jesus was saying yes to captivity. Accepting freedom was accepting captivity. <laughs> he was resolute in this decision and was happy to do so for Christ. And if I'm asking anything from us this morning, if the gospel, I think, is asking anything from this morning, I guess I'm asking, are we? Are we okay with whatever Christ wants to do with us? Whatever he wants with our life. We, we say, Lord, I surrender. We say, Lord, here, take my life. God, do with it as you will. I just want the Lord's will. We say this, but are you really okay if the Lord decides to do with your life whatever he wants to do? Are you okay with hardship? Are you okay with difficulty? Are you okay with, uh, you know, one of the people that I'm always talking about, my wife will tell you, is Jeremiah. Are you okay with being a John the Baptist where your ministry is only six months? Oh, it's six months of fire and everybody wishes you were still around but you've been told that it's it you're done you need to step down now and so you do so that christ can rise up or so that god can do the other thing that he's been holding you for he only meant for you to be a six-month ministry so the next guy could come in there and really do the thing he was supposed to do are you okay with just being a front runner or, or are you okay with being a jeremiah being a person that maybe nobody ever listens to will struggle with internal belief in your own self. By the time Jeremiah, you know, everybody loves to quote the first chapter where he's like, here am I, Lord, I am young, but God, here I am. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. But you get into chapter 20 of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's like, no one listens to me. Everybody hates me. They all think that I'm not of the Lord. And you know what, God, just why don't you go ahead and kill me because this is hard. You know what? How about this, God? I take it all back. I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm tired of this. I just want friends. I want people to be my family. I just want community. So you know what? I don't want this anymore. And then he's like bipolar. He goes, but I can't stop my lips from saying the things that you're telling me to say. It's like a fire in my bones. So there's this inner torture all the time going on where I know I'm, do I'm doing what God's called me to do, but it's leading my life into misery. We won't talk about those things because we like hearing the things where everything works out good. That's the good stories, right? We want to play you the video where everything works out great in the end. Everybody wants the fairy tale story. It's just not always that way. Here's the good news, right? Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good, that it's all working out for a bigger purpose. You know, for those that it never worked out for, Hebrews 11, 
says that those people who believed in promises and hope that they never saw were too good for this world. He doesn't say that about Moses. He doesn't say that about Abraham, his friend. He doesn't say that about Jeremiah. He doesn't say that about Elijah. All these famous guys, Sam, Samuel. He didn't say, say it about any of these guys. He says it about these unknown people who have no names written in the Bible, who were simply persecuted and killed because they believed what they never saw to their death. And he labeled them too good for this world. You know what we're going to find out when we get to heaven? They're in the front row. They're the closest to the Father because they didn't need a famous name to believe. They didn't need a miracle to believe. They didn't need uh, health, wealth, and prosperity to believe. They didn't need those things. They coveted one thing and one thing alone, and that was the favor of God. What do we do when we're faced with such circumstances and such difficulty? When when we we face with trials and tribulation, right? Our our, our first instinct isn't to press in, (laughs) right? Or rejoice in our circumstances like Paul, right? Like that's what he did. But rather we, we put our faith often on hold. That's what we do. We put our faith on hold. Or worse, a lot of them walk away. A lot of people walk away from the faith, right? This was the Apostle John's experience when he wrote in 1 John uh, 2.19. In the New Living, it says it this way. These people left our churches, but they were never really belonged to us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they never belonged with us. Some people are going to walk with us for a while, but that doesn't mean they were ever one of us. And when I say one of us, I mean Christian. I mean, truly sold out, love Jesus with everything in them. He is the center focus of their life. Those people are few and far between. Listen, this isn't a shot towards poor discipleship or weak people. This is a revelation to who has counted the cost and has anchored themselves into the foundations of Christ. At the heart of this entire conundrum is freedom. Mm. Let me say that again. At the heart of this entire conundrum is freedom see the irony of the gospel is also its greatest message and this is it that without christ you are enslaved to sin you are a slave you don't even know it right we call it depravity in theology the study of depravity the study of the, the study of your nature your your human basic nature instinct is to sin you are a slave to your prime nature and your prime nature is selfishness Complete and utter selfishness, right? You are sinful, in fact, in that every part of you is corrupted. The Bible says, can a leopard change its spots? Neither can you change from sin. It's impossible unless Christ intervenes, right? And you cannot see this. It can't be done. You cannot come out of this unless the Holy Spirit reveals this to you. And when this happens, the Bible promises that everyone will have a chance, that you will be given a moment. You could call it clarity. You can call it freedom. In this moment, you will be given a chance to make a choice. You will either accept Jesus and embrace the freedom he gives you to break free from this sin or your depravity, or you will say no, and you will go back to living your life the way you want to. Like Jimi Hendrix used to say, I'm the one that's going to have to die when it's time for me to die, so let me live my life the way I want to. That's fine. You totally can. That is a choice you get to have. Now, it pleases your base nature, that choice. But at some point, you will have to choose one or the other. And here is where freedom is found. 
In receiving Christ, you're finally free from this nature, free from sin. This is the freedom that is promised in John 8, 36, when it says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. See, if you were so free before, we wouldn't need that scripture. Everybody loves to say, oh, man, I got free will to make the choice. No, you have free will when God gives you free will. God gives you free will when he challenges you with that choice. From that point on, you become a slave to one or the other. You will either a slave to your selfishness and you choose no to Jesus and I choose me. Because as they would say on Facebook and every other little social media culture, I am so worthy and so worth it. Mm. But, but that's, it's one or the other, right? Or I can choose Christ and I can be free from myself. Christ will free me from these selfish needs that make life all about me and make me so miserable. I can't be in good relationship with others. Why? Because I'm more important than they are. Right? That's what sin does. It makes us over people. You know, we, we, we must be better than or, or, or we must be uh, more prominent than. So our self wants to rise up. So in accepting Christ, though, if you, if you choose that route, you're now free from sinful decision. You're free from the sinfulness of your life. However, in that same moment, Christ is begging you and pleading with you to use that freedom to choose a holy life. He is. Go look at the Bible. Look at all the stuff where it talks about faith and works. If it's all grace, why have works at all? Works are there to prove that you have grace, right? I mean, one prove the other. Your faith will produce the works because it's compelled to out of its generosity for Christ, for his wonderful gift to you, his imparting gift of your freedom. So in your freedom, you now choose, you know what? I'm going to be like Paul called it a bond servant, or I become now the slave to Christ rather than a slave to sin. Now I will follow Christ. Christ says, I don't have to do all these things. So, I mean... Paul called it, I'm a bondservant or I'm a slave to Christ, and he was happy to do so. And I'll be honest with you, so, so am I. But Christ doesn't uphold me like a slave. He's not like, you have to do this. No, I, I don't have to. There's a lot of things Christ gives us freedom for. Doesn't mean they're wise, nor that we should do them. The Bible talks about those things too. But here's the thing, you're now free. You went from a captive person to a free person. And God says, now you have the grace to go do some of these things. And I forgive you and my grace is sufficient. But should you? What I really want is for you to follow me and become a people set apart. What I really want is you, and like in Romans 8, I want you to bear the image of me to the world. To follow me and imitate me. And I'm now giving you the freedom to do so. You have the freedom to reject that too. But he's pleading with you to choose this holy life. This will become your new nature. Paul used the first three chapters of this epistle, the Colossians, to describe this process as a holy transformation. Paul is pleading, okay, so you've learned about Jesus. You said yes to Jesus. God's given you grace. Those things that you were doing, God's covered it with his grace, right? The way you talk, you shouldn't talk some of the ways you talk. Maybe you're using language you shouldn't be using. You know what, though? That's covered under the blood. You're forgiven by Christ now, right? But listen, Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. Allow him to transform you into a new creation set apart. You're not the old you, so quit acting like the old you. Embrace the change of Christ being in you and start acting like a new you. He spends the first three epistles doing so. The old is crucified. The old is dead. Now it is new. And the new you is born. And listen, there are many paradoxes in the Bible. This isn't one of them. All right? This isn't a both and sort of thing. You can't have both. Okay? 
You can't have your old life. You can't have those old things and, and lust after the things that you lusted after when you were uh, fully engulfed in sin. This isn't a, oh, I can be this and this now. No, both that. No, 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 no. This, this is a either or sort of thing here. When people try to have both, they really have nothing. And we, we call this in the redneck woods sitting on the fence. You got one leg on one side, one leg on the other. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Whose side are they on? They're on nobody's side. They're on their side. We call them hypocrites, right? And they're the greatest threat to Christianity, more so than the devil. <laughs> they are. Because the majority of people who sit on the fence are what most people see. These are those who walk among us saying all the right things, but never fully able to walk in the fullness of the gospel because it's too difficult. They didn't count the cost. It's too painful. It's too hard. It's just too much. They never counted the cost, though it has been preached, though it has been proclaimed to them. They see the Gospels, they see in the Gospels what they want to see, right? Much like Thomas Jefferson. Do you know the story about his Bible? Thomas Jefferson, anything he disagreed with, he just cut it out. And so that the only thing he was left with was everything he agreed with and everything he could find himself believing. And most people live Christianity exactly like him. They cut out the parts they don't like that restrict the things that they want, right? That don't appeal to their base nature, their prime nature, their sinful nature, right? So let's get rid of that. This way I can still be saved and I can still be sin. Because God is grace and God is love. Mm-hmm. You misunderstand the gospel and what he's saving you from if you don't understand that. Repent means, which, by the way, we talk about the big thing about us here is return. Right? Old Testament, the word is return. It means to turn around and come back to me, saith the Lord. Right? There's, go look up the script. Go look up the word in like the Strong's Accordance. There's scripture, 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 right? The word changes. It's the same meaning, but it changes in the New Testament. It's called repent. And that one word built the entire New Testament church. And it should be the word that's still building the entire New Testament church. Repent means to what? Turn around and come back to me. Your life is, you are leading yourself away from me. Turn around and come back to me. We are to live our life in a constant state of repentance, always realizing that we're getting, we're not crucifying our flesh. We're not killing this sinful side of us. And it is dicta, it is trying to always draw us away from the things that's giving us freedom. It's always trying to drag us back into captivity. I heard, I think it was Rodney Hire Brown one time that said, as many of you are sitting in a jail cell with the door wide open, you can leave at any time, but you choose to sit in your sin. If we're not careful, we all have the ability to squander the freedom that was purchased for us from Christ. This thought, this principle is why I'm reminded uh, of what I'm reminded every 4th of July. What am I doing with the freedom that was purchased for me? <laughs> like, there, really, this should be like an Easter message. What, what are you doing with your freedom? Are you using it to go live and justify your fleshly desires? Or are you really doing something for the kingdom? Are you really doing something that's, that's, that's worth a life, worth a journey? Can I tell you that many combat veterans, they think like this? One of the stories that we have online for our Help for Heroes Facebook page is a story of a man uh, who is uh, he's part of a platoon. And uh, in this combat platoon, he, he uh, 
they're getting ready to, to go from one place to the next. They're doing a convoy. In this convoy, there's not enough room in this armored carrier for his, for his whole platoon, right? So his whole squad is able to fit on this one, but he's the lone guy who can't make it on, on this one armored carrier. And so he's having to go on this other one that's a couple behind. And, you know, and he was like, man, those punks, I really wanted to sit in there, and now I can't be with my own guys, right? Well, an IED happens. If you don't know, it's a explosive on the road, and it blows up the armored carrier with all of his platoon in there. He's the lone survivor. And he talks about how hard it is to deal with the fact that all of his friends and everybody that he lived with, right, is gone. And, he's lived, and, he, says, and he talks about it, it being soul-crushing to him to have to live without them. And he sits around being depressed, and he sat around being upset. And then he knows, though, and he can, it's like he can hear them being angry at him just sitting around and being depressed. That's not what they died for. They died so that he can go fishing. They died so he can spend time with his wife. They died so he can spend time with his kids and his friends. They died so he can enjoy a Memorial Day, a Veterans Day, a Fourth of July. That's what they did it for. They served with that purpose so that the ones who you could enjoy the freedom by which it was purchased. That's why we celebrate these things. That's why we celebrate our founding fathers. That's why we celebrate Veterans Day. That's why we celebrate Memorial Day. That's why we celebrate Fourth of July. As Christians, we celebrate what? We celebrate Christmas. Why? Because the one who brought us freedom is born, right? Why do we celebrate Easter? Because that's when our freedom is secured. Freedom always costs the same. Costs blood. Always the same. Right? As Christians who have counted the cost, our hope lies on the horizon. Right? It's firmly rooted in Christ. So much so that even when things get hard or tough, we have a firm foundation of truth and hope and love because it's rooted in Christ. Where, where is he in us? We receive him. We take him on. We give up our freedom and we take upon the image of Christ. We give up this image, this self-image of the world, right? That, that we're so different. We're, heck with being different. I just want to be seen by one person. If I'm doing anything, I'm trying to be a carbon copy of Jesus. And whether that makes the denomination happy, whether that makes you happy, that's neither here nor there to me. My wife will tell you whether it makes her happy or not is neither here nor there to me. She'll tell you as much as anything, it is Christ first in my house. I walk according to the revelation Christ gives me and nothing more. I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please him. Same goes for you. You're not here to please me. You're here to please him. Your life exists to please him. Not to please me. Not to please this community. But guess what? As we please him, we please others. Because our heart, as we become his image, we share in that. We become the servant because he is what? A servant. We love others. Why? Because he loves others. We think less of self and crucify our flesh because he doesn't think of himself. And he came humble and he crucified his flesh. We bear his image. We are so rooted and we're so focused that it helps us give really little care to our current situation at times. You wonder, look, I don't know about you, but the world seems like it's going down fast. And we celebrate in the 4th of July, and that was like the only time I bet Democrats and Republicans have been on the same page. It's, both sides think it's awesome that we're not part of England. Right? But the rest of it, it's all divided. It all seems scary. It all seems sad. But listen, why do we have little care for those things? Because I know where I'm going. I know what I'm working towards. And it's not retirement. It's called kingdom. 
eternal reward. Good and faithful servant. Right? Loving my neighbor. Loving my family. Being godly, holy, and set apart. These are my goals in life. And I guarantee you everything that's happening with our government right now does not merit anything upon those things. This is where we win so many to Christ when this is our attitude. By our devout walk with Jesus during the most difficult and troubling and trying times. Isn't this what really intrigues us about Paul? We're constantly, I mean, Paul wrote 75% of the New Testament. And a lot of it from jail. Today, I don't know that we would call that the greatest preacher born of men. You know, if we had some guy in prison just knocking out books left and right going, man, this guy was in prison. We'd be all like, what's he in prison for? Yeah, everybody finds Jesus in prison. Listen to his parting words, and here we pick it up. Colossians 4. These are his last words, his really last instructions before he gets into this who's who in the prison. Just two through six. Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That's why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. For everyone. You see, Paul reveals that this letter, it's all being done in prison. Here, you know, in this translation, under chains. Look at his attitude while he's there. He refers to prison as a place that will bring him opportunities to spread the gospel. Man, pray for me while I'm here. Look at all these opportunity. There's so many sinners here. He sees prison as a vessel by which he will minister to more people. And if you go on to read the rest of the chapter, you're going to see that he's right. He just starts naming people. This guy's been helping me. I got him saved. Now he's like the, he's my writer. I just dictate everything out to him. Pray for Luke because Luke's not even in jail, but he's still here with me. You know, Luke's not even in trouble. And he just comes to visit jail all the time to write everything down. All right. Pray for all these other guys who are helping me out because yeah, they're all convicts that got saved. You know, this is what happens in prison, right? I mean, it's interesting. And, and maybe, maybe it begs the question, do you see your current position in life like that? Where you're at right now with what you do for work, with wherever you go shop, all those things. You know, you've heard me say it in here before. I don't, I, don't go, I don't like going through the tellers at the bank. Why? Because then I can talk to the tellers inside the bank. That's why I love HEB. And I love, honestly, I like working for a living because when I, when I, I don't say when I didn't, pastoring is working. Uh, but now that I work at a 40-hour week, right, I go to HEB like everybody else does in the evening, right? That's what I'm saying, right? There's nobody there during the day hardly. Well, now it's summer, but normally. And you know what's awesome about going in the evening? Everybody's there. It's community. My sister-in-law came and visited us, never come down here in 10 years. She came here and visited us, walked in with Joy. It was like, man, she knew everybody. Like, we couldn't even get out. She's like, we couldn't get out of there. Joy kept talking to everybody. 
like, well, yeah, we've lived here a decade and we know a lot of people and, and, and we've loved on a lot of people and we've shared life with a lot of people. And uh, Joy's put a lot of braces on a lot of people's kids and we've helped out a lot of kids in this place. You know, a lot of the kids that we had in youth group, I was showing Michael the other day, I was like, oh, this one's got two kids, this one's got one kid, this one's married, this one's over here, has got four kids. This one, I mean, like, good night. We've lived a little bit of a life here. And man, that's the glory, right? We get to see all these things. What position are you in right now? Where is your life, right? Do you see it as the opportunity for ministry? Everywhere I go, my wife will tell you, that's why I go inside the bank. Why? Because there's opportunity for ministry. Going in the evening HEB, there's opportunity for ministry. I get to love on somebody, see somebody I might not have seen in a while and hug their neck, right? I don't have a kid that plays football, but I'm at, all, I'm at as many football games as I can go to. Why? Because the town is there and there's opportunity for ministry. I live my life in such a way, and I try to lead by example, that everything is an opportunity for ministry, that God has placed me in Marble Falls for such a time as now and for such a thing as this. It is all opportunity how we deal with these, instruction, these construction guys, God help us, is opportunity. <laughs> I promise you, we're doing our part. It's called opportunity, though, how we witness to them and how we conduct ourselves. The devil don't get to steal our joy. The devil don't get to steal my patience. This is an opportunity for us to express the grace and mercy of God. Opportunity. Everything is an Opportunity. And I promise you, you never really know what you're made of until you face the difficulty of prison and chains and hardship and difficulty and wondering if you're going to make the tithe and wondering all. It's, you have to. The greatest blades are all forged in the fire. And if you're going to be a sword for the Lord, by gosh, you ain't, you've got to go through it. By the way, if you just want to talk about fire, everything is either done good in fire or it's getting rid of in fire. Better get used to that one. When uh, John the Baptist came out of the desert, same thing came with the Holy Spirit and fire. He preached about one who would come and bring a fire after him too, right? A Holy Spirit fire, right? But he also said that any branches that weren't worth keeping, he burned in the brush fire. Us rednecks should know that one. God bringing his own diesel. All right? And, what, and, and, and in Paul in this, right? This is he, like, even in, like, hey, I'm in chain. That's the first time he mentions it. The first time he mentions his own struggle, and, and, and we go through three, three different chapters, and he never mentions the fact that he's writing from a place of struggle. By the way, most people that write a church from prison are needing help, not saying, hey, let me bless you. <laughs> and I've had letters from people in prison. Not one of them said, hey, let me sow a seed into you. It's usually like, hey, what can you do for me once I get out? Can you help me? Can you do this? Paul's not asking that. Paul's saying, brother, I'm in here crying over you. Don't cry over me in here. God has gave me a wonderful opportunity to be in here. He's pushed me around from prison to prison, and this has allowed me to minister to different people. Matter of fact, I would almost say that the worst thing the devil could have done was imprison Paul because now he's got nothing to do but write. It was the worst thing. And what are his parting lessons? Well, he gives us three of the, of the final lessons. To, basically, he gives to them three little lessons, writing from prison. Uh, all in the meantime, he's counting his suffering, his joy. He's using his... Freedom to pursue holy and a gracious life. And the first thing he says to us is really simple. And it's really the theme of the church. And it should be our primary focus and vision as followers of Christ. But also the church body. He says this. Devote yourselves to prayer. With an alert mind and a thankful heart. 
And I'm telling you, church, I'm going to hammer this. Even if it kills me, we are going to be a people of prayer. And we will be a church of prayer. The only other name by which Jesus refers to the church is the house of prayer. And let me explain why this is such a big deal to me. I remember hearing uh, um, one of the former, I think it was superintendent, uh, general superintendent, of the Assemblies of God telling a story. I, I, don't, I can't remember if it was a personal story, but he was telling it as this young little girl uh, that maybe they knew or something like that. And it was, she, was, she was kind of uh, vivacious. She was a little bit, uh, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe ADD, maybe just, just rambunctious, energetic. And uh, uh, she would run around and, and like growl and stuff. And they started calling her Tiger. And, you know, they thought it was a cute little pet name. Except the problem is that she was getting, as she's getting older, she's still violent and still not behaving in a way that it's right. And it was cute at first, but you ever know where like all of a sudden it's not cute anymore, right? And, and they're not liking this idea, the fact that now they've named it and they call it Tiger. She's embraced the name. You know what I'm saying? So they realize, hey, we got, maybe we got to quit this calling her Tiger thing. Let's call her uh, Lamb. We'll call her my, my Little Lamb. And so they would like, every time she'd come up, they'd try to diffuse about, oh, you're my little lamb. Oh, come up here and cuddle with me. You're my little lamb. You're my little lamb. And over time, her attitude and her behavior adjusted, and she would become more of the my little lamb. She calmed down, and again, they began to speak that vision over her, that idea that she was calm and gentle and sweet and not this tiger, right? My aunt was named Rebel. Want to guess how she lived her life? She died in her 50s. Maybe. maybe it's, no, it's probably 50s. She lived fast. That was her name, though. Her parents named her Rebel. What did you think was going to happen? Jesus called us the house of prayer. What do you think should happen? How do you think we should respond to that? That's the only other name by which he calls us. We're referred to as the bride. That's great, but... The house of prayer is kind of visionary. It casts vision of what he expects the prayer to be or what he expects the church to be. Life and death is found in the tongue, and Jesus called us the house of prayer, not the house of worship, not the house of small groups, not the house of outreach, not the house of programs. You get the idea. The house of prayer. We are to be a people devoted to prayer and a church body that is devoted to prayer. Paul says we're to pray with an alert mind, savvy to the wiles of the devil, and yet spiritually sighted to see when something is of God. Paul says we're to pray with a thankful heart, too. If you're struggling here, the best place for you to be is on your knees. If you aren't thankful for everything you have, if 4th of July didn't remind you how you could still be speaking English, right? Well, I guess we'd still be speaking English, right? <laughs> British. I heard somebody say once, oh, no, I'd just be dead. I wouldn't be speaking British. I'd just be dead. But either way, uh, you ought to be happy about it. Lastly, on the subject of prayer, Paul says, pray for people other than yourself. Pray that, they, um, that those who are ministering uh, the gospel can do so successfully and that those who have yet to hear about it have their hearts open to it. There's plenty to pray for. Plenty to pray for. I can tell you there's all kinds of things to pray for in this town. I just got through listening to testimonies yesterday from the Joshua House out there in Kingsland. They had their big banquet out there, and they had some of the men get up and express how they came there all struggling and, and, and with addiction and everything and how being at the Joshua House where it's centered around Christ and their lives are being literally transformed. And if you've never gone and listened to anything from the open door, 
facility, you're missing it. You need, to, you need to get active in some of those places. Those places are doing incredible work for Jesus here in Marble Falls. Incredible work. The second thing Paul teaches from prison is that we should live wisely among those who are not believers. And contrary to as many churches we have on the block here in Marble Falls, there is still a lot of unbelievers here. We could spend months talking about what, like, how, what this means and, and, and how to approach this, but the most obvious way is simple. Kind of touched on it. Just don't be hypocrites. That would be like the number one thing I'd probably hit on. Just don't be hypocrites. If you say you're a Christian, but you look like the world and act like the world and talk like the world, then you might be a hypocrite. little FYI there. There's a pretty good chance that if you never spend time in prayer with Christ, yet you attend church and outreaches, you sing worship, you're probably a hypocrite. You have to spend time with Jesus. Anybody can sing songs. Anybody can just murmur and repeat words back. Come on. How you live, how you live, how you live. Christianity isn't convenient. Let me say that again. Christianity isn't convenient. It's downright brutal at times. It forces you to be honest with yourself. Some of the things that people have said to me have been so mean and so hurtful and sometimes so true. My wife will tell you, I take it all home. I mull it over. And my wife will be the first one to try to defend me. She'll say, baby, don't listen to that. Don't listen to this or don't listen. And, and, and I go, well, but if it's true, I needed to hear it. And I've always said, y'all know this about me. I've always said, sometimes the devil's the only one who will tell me the truth. It's a hard, hard truth, but it's, it's, that is how it is. Christianity requires that you sacrifice your selfish desires on the cross. It's not what I want anymore. It's what does he want. You are to crucify the part of you that desires self-comfort and self-exaltation. Crucify means kill. Again, Paul spends three chapters dealing with the death of your old self and the transforming power of the cross. Three chapters. The first three chapters of Colossians. We've been talking about it for a month now. That's all we've been talking about. That was his most important concept. Listen, all this can be avoided. Hypocrite stuff can be avoided if you will allow Christ in you to make the transformation. Let go of your feelings. Detach yourself from your feelings. The cross is going to hurt. Detach yourself from the pain because I'm telling you, pain creates selfishness. The last thing Paul teaches from prison should be obvious after the first two. He says, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you have the right response for everyone. This goes without saying, but whatever comes out of your mouth is coming directly from your heart. If your heart isn't changed, your mouth ain't going to be either. It's going to come out. As pastors, I'm telling you, that's like the thing we probably touch on the most between each other and pastors. You know why? Because we talk way too much. If our hearts ain't right, can I tell you, it's going to come out right here. It's going to come out. You know how, how I see it a lot in, in pastors? You hear it in their theology. Man, when somebody first gets saved, when somebody really, really gets saved, you'll see them start shedding off the old skin. They'll quit listening to the music they've been listening to. They'll quit listening to the, the, the conversations type stuff they listen to. They, start, they quit looking at the movies that they've been kind of looking at. They quit. I mean, there's a lot of things that they quit that they immediately see as sin in their life. And there's such this embrace, this, this loss. Now, I want to be just lost in Christ. And they, they're just overwhelmingly towards it, right? But over time, it seeps, tries to seep itself back in. 
It'll disguise itself, and you'll be like, well, you know, God will probably be okay with this. It's funny how much we, like, step backwards. I'm like, ah, I can probably justify this. God, God, God gives grace, right? He loves us, right? And you'll see that in their theology. Like, pastors, they'll back up their theology. All of a sudden, there's grace for things they didn't have grace for 10 years ago. I've seen pastors that started out with a whole bunch of grace and ain't got none now. I mean, one of the ones that's one of my favorite ones to listen to, and I would say I'm an advocate for him, 10 years ago was talking about, hey, man, it's okay to have a drink once in a while, and he would brag on it from the pulpit every once in a while, which, by the grace of God, you can have a beer. Now, is it profitable? Should you? There's some questionable stuff to there, and we've talked about some of that before. But can I tell you, that same guy who was preaching all that stuff back then, which was still the truth, man, he like doesn't talk about it at all now. He didn't talk about it all. But, and the biggest thing you know what he has to deal with in his church right now is hypocrites. Well, you created it, bro. You created your own problem. You taught so lax and so lazy that you got Christians according to what you taught, and now you've got to have to deal with that. By not being confrontational with it, by not trying to say, hey, there's a standard or there's a place we should ascend to or try to achieve, doesn't mean, listen, we might never accomplish that thing, but that's what grace is for. It doesn't mean you shouldn't aspire to be completely I, I don't think you can be sinless. Christ makes you sinless, right? But you should aspire to be more like Christ every day, right? And I truly believe the more, if you'll just aspire to that, I'm the firm believer. This is where grace comes in. Grace comes in with, yeah, everybody struggles. But if we see the aspiration, if we see the struggle in you to try, I'm trying, trying. I'm, I'm getting knocked back down, but I'm getting back up and I'm trying again. Can I tell you that that's like 98% Christianity right there? You get knocked back down. It's okay. You come back. That's how it is. Well, I hadn't prayed in a while. Okay, so start tomorrow. Let's go. Well, I, don't, I didn't pray very long. I know. Okay, so get back up the next day. Let's try again. That's like Christianity in a nutshell. There will be a day where that quits being a struggle. And then you'll have a new one. There's always a new one. Okay, the things I struggled with 20 years ago are not what I struggle with today. And the sad part is, if I was, if I was to look at myself 20 years ago, I'm like, I'm not even sure that guy's saved. But I know I was, but I was just so raw and had so many things wrong. And God, little by little, was plucking these things from me and taking these things going, now I want this part of your life, Jim, and I need you to give me this. And so I, okay, Lord, I give you this. But I kind of take it back a little bit. I'm struggling. I told Joy, I said, a lot of us have sin on one of those keychain lines. You know, have you ever seen those like the maintenance guy always has or something? It's got this circle. It's got a little cable that hooked to the keys. A lot of you are like... The keys are your sin, right? And you give God the keys, and you're like, once you walk away, and go, watch this. Whew, and they come right back to you. And you keep your sin on you. That's what you do, man. You give God your sin. Like, here's, here's my sin. I left it on the altar. It goes right back with you. Huh, took it back with me. Some of you are like that. And you know what we got to do? Eventually, you got to take that thing off and just put it all on the altar. God, I give it all. I don't want it back. And sometimes it'll find its way back. And you're like, I don't even know how it got here. I left it there. And, and your wife's like, well, I picked it up and put it in the, I thought, I saw you left it. And no, I'm not, it's not my wife, but, but that's how it feels, right? Like I'm trying, Lord, I keep failing. I know, but one day it'll just be You're like, when did I, like I always tell people, I can't remember when I got saved. I look back now, I feel like I always been saved, but I remember a time where I wasn't. I remember how bad I was before. And honestly, as much as I said the words, can I tell you, when God filled me with the Holy Ghost, that's when I felt saved. Like, I felt it. I said words, and that's all fine and dandy. And by faith, I believed it, but I didn't feel it. Man, when the Holy Spirit hit me, I did feel it. 
And everything changed. My tongue began to change. Man, I was a Marine. So we talk, when Paul talks about his tongue changing, I mean, if I didn't, like, Lord, help me. Uh, as much as I'm reading right here, I mean, I couldn't have got through at least two sentences without saying the F word about 15 times. Like, it was like, almost like everywhere you see a space in a word would have been the F word. Not joking. My wife will vouch for that. And over time, as my heart changed, God took that from me. And it wasn't instant. There was times where it would come out here and there. And it wasn't instant. Right? There's times today. It ain't like I don't think it sometimes. I'm not perfect. All right? You deal with, you deal with a, an idiot. Right? And there's plenty of them in this world. Come on. And sometimes we've been it. We've all played the idiot before too. Okay? We've probably been the cause of somebody else's sin in our life. All right? And, and in that moment, right, this is the part where we, okay, man, I had this moment. Lord, you know my heart. You know, it doesn't matter that I didn't say it. It was in my heart anyway, God. It was in my heart, Lord, I need you to deal with this, right? And that's become my sin now. Is now it's not even what comes out of my mouth. It's, what, it's what's in my head. I've disciplined my brain to keep my mouth shut from saying dumb stuff, but you know what? It's still here. That doesn't make me better than somebody else. It just means I've learned how to discipline my mouth from saying it sometimes. Now, I can tell you it don't happen very much. But little by little, I keep pursuing. I aspire to be more like Jesus every day. And the more I struggle, the more I try, the more I try, the more I try. Eventually, it quits being I'll accomplish one thing and then hit the next. And you know what? I turn around and think at the end, like, how did I even get past that? I don't even know. You know what? It comes down because of Jesus. It wasn't even me. It was Jesus in me. What, Christ, what Paul's been trying to teach the Colossians all the time, Christ in you will give you the power to be an overcomer. He will use the freedom he gives you to take you to new heights if you'll just believe it and let him. And believe means to get back up and keep working and get back up and keep working. And eventually, Christ will just do it. You won't even know. You know what you're going to be committed to? The work. The work of trying. Of trying. There'll be tons of failure. But after a while, even failure doesn't feel that bad anymore. It feels like, well, it all leads to success no matter how many times I fail. It eventually leads to success, so how bad can it be? Everyone could use a little help, right? Especially with the tongue. I think it's interesting that God placed this giant wall around it. I mean, this is a pretty hard wall. It takes a lot to break a tooth. But there's this giant white wall around your entire front of your mouth here. God said, we've got to close that thing. And, and it's, it's crazy, man. It's like a big cage, and still the monster gets loose, right? Uh, it's the most dangerous thing on the face of the planet is the tongue. Literally, the most dangerous thing on the face of the planet is the tongue. The tongue has started more wars and killed more people than any plague. And if you're not careful, it'll get the best of you too. Paul was using his freedom and living in his freedom, and his freedom led him to captivity. And in captivity, Paul would change the world. Paul used his freedom that led him to captivity, and captivity helped him change the world. God has given you freedom. What are you using it for? Where has it positioned you? Where has it placed you in life? What are you doing with it there? Do you see your place in life or your position, the people that are around you? How are you influencing them? How are you using the people around you or, or the opportunity of, of the people around you to be more Christ-like? Are you building them up? I hope so. Are you encouraging and lifting up? You know, one of the things that I still have a lot to learn on, my mentor is really good at this, and that's why I call him a mentor still, Stephen McKnight. You know, the interesting thing, we hadn't seen each other now in going on probably eight or nine years, maybe eight. 
Eight years I hadn't seen him at all. But we still talk on a monthly basis, if not twice a month. Stephen always picks up the phone and goes, hey, man, what are you doing? And even though that we have some fundamental disagreements on how to do church and things like that, none of that stops us from lifting each other up, building each other up. And I'll still go to him and go, Stephen, man, I know we disagree on a lot of things, but, man, I'm struggling with this and da-da-da-da-da. And this, this is something I'm thinking out loud, and I just want you to listen to me. Tell me what you think about this. Well, I like this, but, you know, I think you really need to look. I'm like, yeah, but I know you think like that because you don't think like I do. Well, you know. And we get into this back-and-forth thing, but it's what I need. But the fact that he just calls me, picks up the phone, you know, eight years of not seeing each other, but we're holding each other accountable. That even though we have such greatly vast differences, we still love one another and want to build each other up, and we still believe in each other. And, I, and I'll be honest, he's probably one of the first ones, that probably most impactful on me, because he's one of the first guys that really believed in me as a minister. Could saw, saw it in me, goes, dude, we're wasting time with you just being in the church. You need to be leading something. And he saw that potential, and he says, we got to feed that monster. That monster has to get fed. God's given you a call. God's given you gifts. We need to get those things going. And even to this day, that's what he sees. And it's amazing to have somebody that in your life, man. And I hope and pray that as even as I was a youth pastor that I still give off that same thing. I have hope and beliefs that everybody has that in their life. I do believe that every single one of you have the call of God on your life. And how we pull those gifts out and how we do those things are all really determined by you. What are you going to do with your freedom? You have the freedom not to, to answer the call. But that growing itch... That little bit of frustration in your life that you're wondering, what if? It's always going to be there. Can I tell you, I don't have that itch. I'm scratching it already. I don't have that itch. I let that thing go a long time ago on the altar. And for those of you who are young in here, you're not exempt. You're right in the prime. I can tell you, I remember one of the photos that popped up from camp. All these camp photos right now from the last 10 years of going to camp or whatever have been popping back up. And uh, one of the things that I, kept, that I saw the other day was this little guy. I shouldn't say little guy, I guess. Uh, Tyler. Uh, I think his name's Tyler Dennis. And uh, he is a, uh, minister, he's a youth pastor now. But when I first met him, he was going to Sagu. He was a good, strong 18, maybe 19 years old. He could grow a beard like a grown man at that age. Good night. Uh, and uh, and, and here, here he is. He's just this young kid that's full of energy, full of all this stuff. And uh, he's finding his way, trying to figure out if he wants to do ministry, that kind of thing. And I'm with my youth group, and I remember going down to the altar, and I'm just bawling my eyes out as I do a lot uh, at the altar. And I'm just having a moment with the Lord, and I feel this hand come up behind me, and he begins to pray for me and just speak in tongues and speak life over me, man. And we just have this very intimate moment, man, down at the altar together as two, two men down at the altar. And, and it's interesting today to see him youth pastoring. You know, here's a guy who's praying over pastors as a kid who now is the pastor himself that kids pray over. Man, so much potential, so much potential there. Everything keeps passing. God's got a plan, guys. God's got a plan, but it costs everything. There's, some, there's a cost to everything. There's no way you get out of this cheap. You don't get to be a Christian cheap. It costs you something. It'll cost you friends. You, none of the guys that I grew up with, I hang around. A lot of things because they still drink and they still do drugs, most of them. And, and, and the way their mouth is, I can't be around that all the time. It's not good for me. 
It's not good for me. It's like anything else. If you go around in an environment all the time and it's bad all the time, guess what? Man, it's hard to be so protective of your own self, man. It's hard. So you have to control the environment that you're in as well. And these are hard decisions you have to make. Well, it'll make it hard to get a job. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. There's no way around that. Some of it require more prayer than others. But I can tell you this. You serve a big God. And you will have less worry and less concern if you get the first of the three right. Become a people of prayer. Devote your life to prayer. Spend all your time, any time that you have, giving it to prayer. And I promise you, this world that you're looking outside of, that you fret sometimes, it will wash away. God is waiting. God is waiting for the next person that's going to devote and give their life to prayer. And I promise you, if there's a reputation to be had in this town for this group of people, this body of believers, we will be the house of prayer here. There's a lot of reputations churches have. I promise you, I don't know any around here that are called the house of prayer. Prayer happens at all of them, but that isn't what they're known for. I would like to be known for that. Wouldn't it be nice if others said that? Like, well, that's the church where everybody prays all the time. Well, that's horrible. <laughs> I would be over here cheerleading that. Yes, yes, what a great reputation to have. You know, because Jesus said that was kind of a big deal. So we're getting ready to worship. Just a few songs. But in this moment, we have a lot to reflect on. Because the challenge really before is Paul lays out this wonderful message about prayer and how we conduct ourselves, and he really culminates everything. But then to just mention, just slightly mention, and he's doing all this from prison. If he can encourage, and he can lift up, and he can build, and if he can teach from a place or a situation in his life that is so dark and so hard and so difficult, so can you. So can you. What are you doing with your freedom this morning? Let's, let's stand as we get ready to worship. Father, Lord, as Pastor Jim. Pray.